All right, welcome everyone to our 11th session in the series that we've been doing called Mind Games, How to Think For and About Yourself. We'll jump back into that in just a moment, but we wanted to get started as close to the normal time at 11.15 as we could because we're going to end at 11.45, and the reason we're ending at 11.45 is something we've been telling you about the last couple of weeks, and that is for the last 15 minutes of our time together today... We're going to have a uh, evacuation drill, a fire drill, and uh, that's something that our security team has wanted to do for quite a while since we've moved into this facility, and uh, now's the day to do that. So at 11.45, security team is going to come in. Wayne Albright, who's the head of that team, is going to then take over and give you some instructions. I think he's going to introduce the guys that are on the security team and then uh, uh, tell you how we'll go about the uh, evacuation drill. So we need to make a haste, and uh, let me, as quickly as I can then, uh, announce some things, and then we'll get into back into mind games. Next week, one week from tonight at 5 o'clock, is our annual celebration dinner. That's our anniversary dinner, because September is the month that our church started. We encourage all of you to come to that, if you can at all. 5 o'clock, as I say, it is dinner. That dinner is being provided, and to help defray some of the costs for that, uh, we're, we sell tickets for that, $5 each, $20 maximum per family. But we need to know how many people are coming in order to let the caterer know about that. So you need to get your tickets today. If you haven't done that already, before you leave today, go to the Resource Center, which is out that back door and across the hall for this next week's celebration dinner. And then in your program, there are some things that uh, for you to make note of. In October, uh, Saturday night, the 17th, is a hayride and bonfire, so mark that on your calendars. Uh, We encourage all of you to come to that. That next day, October the 18th, we will start a new series in this hour on marriage called Marriage Matters. And if there are any of you that are not interested in taking the marriage class, and I'm sure there are a number who fit into that category, then we have a second class called uh, How We Got Our Bible. Dr. Combs is going to be leading that in another part of the building. So we have both of those going on at the same time, starting on October the 18th. Last announcement is baptism on November the 8th. Baptism is for everybody who professes Christ. It's a command of his. If you've never been baptized, which means you've been dunked in water, immersed, to symbolize his death and burial and resurrection. If you've not been baptized that way, then you've not been baptized as Christ commands it, and you need to be, so you need to see me about that, or better yet, pick up the one-page application for baptism that we have at our information center and um, and then uh, fill that out and we'll go from there. All right, mind games. And do we have that uh, graphic or on mind games? Because this thing keeps flipping around. And I don't know if you guys can pay attention with stuff flipping around on the screen. So I like it when stuff is not flipping around on the screen. All right, good, mind games. And we've been looking at this for 10 weeks. Now, this is the 11th week, looking at how God has endowed us with the thinking capacity, which is a part of the reflection of his image in humanity. And the fact that God has given us this thinking and reasoning ability uh, finds itself uh, in a command that the Bible gives us to discern what is best. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 10, uh, Paul says he prays for the Philippian believers that they will be able to discern what is best. Now, what is discernment? A few weeks ago, we, dis, uh, we defined that as the divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and ways from all others. Discernment is 
the divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and God's ways from all other thoughts and ways. That means that I have to think in order to discern. I have to think about what are God's ways compared to other ways. What are God's thoughts compared to to other thoughts? I need to make decisions. And all of us are called by God to make decisions that honor him. So this really, this, this call to discern and learning to discern means that I need to learn to engage in decision making that's in accord with the desires of God, the will of God. Or to put it another way, I, we need to learn how to engage in decision-making and its relationship to the will of God. Decision-making and the will of God. I've recommended a book by that very title to you, and we've sold a bunch of copies of, of that. Uh, we ordered some more, so there might be another copy or two there. And if we run out, we'll order uh, some more copies still. But if you haven't gotten Decision-Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen, I encourage you to get that book at our resource center. I found it very helpful. So as the last couple of weeks, we've honed in on decision-making and the will of God, I've mentioned to you some erroneous ways that folks make decisions. Uh, One of those is feeling-based decision-making. I have a hunch about it. I have a piece about it. I feel good about it. This must be God's will. That's an erroneous way. And then there is outcome-based decision-making. That is, if something turned out right, it must have been uh, a good decision on my part, or if it turned out Badly, if it turned out negatively, then I must have made a bad decision. And actually, you could make a very good and, and right decision, and yet the circumstances coming out of that could be bad for you. And you find that in the Bible a lot. Or you could make a very bad decision, and God in His grace protects you from the results of your bad decision, and it turns out good. But that doesn't mean you made a good decision. So the decision needs to stand or fall on its, its own merits. It's not outcome-based. And then another erroneous way is opportunity-based, that God has opened a door, this must be a God thing, therefore I need to, to jump through this door. No, you need to think about all the factors involved and whether or not this and all of the factors makes this a wise decision, even if this is an open door. Which brings me to what I've said I think is the right way to make decisions, and that is purpose-based decision-making. It's not feeling-based, it's not outcome-based, it's not opportunity-based, but rather purpose-based. That assumes I know what my purpose is, but if I know that, and I'll make sure you know it over the next few weeks because we're going to go through it, but what is our purpose here? And if I know that purpose, then my decisions all need to be subjected to that purpose. They all need to either advance, all of my decisions will either advance that or they will deter from that, that purpose. And if we're going to be in God's will, we need to be intentionally making decisions that advance the purpose for which he has has placed us here. When we think about God's will, we've got to be careful in the language that we use because there is God's sovereign will, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, and that is everything that comes to pass. A sovereign God has determined whatsoever comes, comes to pass. But not everything that comes to pass is in accordance with God's moral will. That in God's sovereign will, people sin, people murder, people steal, people all do all kinds of things that violate God's moral will. So there's his sovereign will, which is everything that comes to pass, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that he uses together for his ultimate glory and our good. But then there is that which conforms to his moral will. So when we say you want to make decisions that are in accordance with the will of God, we're talking about decisions that are in accordance with the moral will of God. Because, as I noted last week, the sovereign will of God is unknown to you until after it happens. 
So you can't be making decisions in accordance with the sovereign will of God or seeking to do that. Uh, everything ultimately is within the sovereign will of God by definition. But you want to make decisions that are in accord with God's moral will. So the difference, the major difference between God's sovereign will and his moral will is this, revelation. That is, God has made his moral will known. He has revealed it. He has told you, has told us what he likes, what pleases him, what's acceptable to him, what he desires. And that's why I've recommended that in order to avoid the confusion that maybe you use this language. For the sovereign will of God, we speak of God's plan. And for the moral will of God, God's God's desire. So there's what God has planned and in God's inscrutable uh, sovereignty, he allows uh, to happen. But then there's that which is in accord with God's character and what God desires and what pleases him. God's plan versus God's desires. Now, with with that, then, an issue comes up, and I started with this last week, and now I'd like to pick up there. And that is everything that happens fits under God's uh, sovereign will. And people get confused about God's sovereign will versus his moral will. They use them as synonymous. We just all call it God's will, and then things get messed up. And so what that means, uh, among other things, is that there are times where uh, people will attribute to God's will things that are actually not his moral will. That whatever happened was God's will. Well, yeah, that's true. If you're talking about his sovereign will. But if you go and sin and violate God's commands in Scripture, you can't say, well, it was God's will in the sense that it was his moral will, right? And if you sin and violate God's moral will and God in his grace works through those circumstances for it to turn out well, you can't say, well, it was a good thing I did that. Joseph's brothers, as I brought up, that would be the Joseph's brothers union. That would be their guild. That would be those guys saying, it's a really good thing that we left Joseph for dead. Because look how God worked it all for good. But Joseph, at the end of that, says in Genesis 50 and verse 20, at the end of that story, he says, you, my brothers, intended this for evil. It was still evil on their part. But God's grace and God's sovereignty overcame their evil to produce something good. But God meant it for good. That's what uh, Joseph Joseph says there. So that confusion leads to a misunderstanding that people have about God's plan, God's sovereign will, and our sin. And I want to make sure that as we discuss the decision-making in the will of God, that we're clear that God's uh, sovereign plan certainly includes everything that happens, good, bad, and ugly. That includes sin. But sin is certainly not in, in uh, keeping with God's moral will. So let me look at some issues with you related to that, what I think is important theme, because I've heard so many people over the years misconstrue that. We live in a victimization culture. So we use the language of victimization. Circumstances have overcome me, and so I'm doing what I'm doing in response to circumstances that are outside of my control. I'm victimized. Well, is God in control of those circumstances that you're in? The answer to that is sovereign God is certainly in control of those. So if you now have the victimization language of our culture and you understand that God is sovereign over everything that comes to pass, you can now then make the leap that God has placed me 
in a victimized situation that then uh, excuses my response and my reaction in that situation. And I hear people in the church do this. We often use the same kind of victimization language as the culture does, but with a spiritual twist. Jesus is the one who saves, but rather than Jesus being primarily the one who saves from our personal sin, Jesus is the one who saves from the effects of bad things that I've been victimized by. And you hear this when teachers talk a lot about brokenness. That that Jesus saves us from our brokenness. Well, here's the thing. We all do suffer the effects of living in a fallen world. And there are broken bodies and there are broken relationships and broken promises and all kinds of brokenness all over a fallen world. There's no doubt about that. But the Bible's emphasis is upon the fact that we are not just broken, but we break stuff. Not that we passively suffer the effects of living in a fallen world. That's all true. But the Bible's emphasis is I contribute to that. That I'm I'm the one who, I, I do my own breaking. But of course, which of those, if you're given the choice, which of those do you want to focus on? Stuff you did to me and people like you and friends like yours? Okay? People like you. Or the stuff that I do? Well, let's talk about the things you do. Okay? I mean, we, we hear it, you know, in things like parents. You know, this theology stuff that I talk about, I always bring up parents. Because it gets, it gets down to the nitty gritty of home life. So what do you think about the things your kid gets in trouble with? Well, here's going to be your first response. Um, they started hanging out with what? Now, now, where does that put the responsibility? On some people's kids, right? On those kids. Um, some of you know that I we had uh, two nephews that were with us uh, through their junior high and senior high years before before Laney and Annie. Actually, Laney came around about the same time they came to live with us. God has a sense of humor with all that. So our house that just had me and Kim all of a sudden has me, Kim, Matthew, Justin, Laney, and then a couple years later, Annie. But I used to say to the boys, uh, you'll never hear me say, uh, you're hanging around with the wrong crowd. Because if you're hanging around with that crowd, then that's what you are. You are the crowd. And in fact, can't the parents of those other kids say they're hanging around with the wrong crowd? And it's your kid who's then part of that crowd, right? So the fact that you want to hang around with that crowd says something about you more than it says something about them. And that's what we need to focus on. But we adopt very easily victimization kind of language. And we make excuses. And if we don't understand the sovereignty of God and our sin properly, then we will find ourselves talking about the fact that we are broken more than we break. We break stuff because we sin. The Bible is emphatic that God is not the author of sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners by nature. Many of you are familiar with James chapter 1. 
that says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. So here's what happens. That chapter in James chapter 1 talks about the sovereignty of God. It doesn't use that phrase. But it's about trials that you find yourself in. That's the way James 1 starts. Many of you know that. James 1 and verse 2. My brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you find yourselves in trials of various kinds. And then it goes on to talk about the purpose for those trials. That God is the one who is behind these circumstances that he sovereignly places you in, but his His desire for the outcome in that is a good desire. That you will develop maturity, ultimately. Now, you and I can be in the exact same circumstance that a sovereign God has placed us in, and one of us achieve that purpose and the other not. And the difference is how we react to it. If you react to it in wisdom, and that's why James 1 and verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That is, God, you've placed me in this circumstance. I need to know how to make application of the knowledge that you've given me from your word to this particular circumstance. That's wisdom. Give me wisdom in this circumstance. If you react that way, you ask God for wisdom, he promises to give that, and his good purpose in your maturity will be achieved. But if you take a different approach... And you become embittered at God because he has placed you in that circumstance. He has sovereignly allowed that to happen. Now, what was designed to be a circumstance for your maturity and your growth now becomes a temptation toward evil. It's the exact same circumstance, and yet God's intention is never the evil. God's intention is that you grow through it. And that's why James shifts gears when he gets to verse 13 of chapter 1 and says, now, when tempted... Don't blame God. Yes, the same God is behind the circumstance. But God has a completely different intention than Satan does and that our sinful nature leads us toward. So when tempted in these circumstances, difficult trials that God sovereignly places us in for ultimately a good purpose, no one should say God is tempting me. But rather each one is tempted when drawn away by his own desire and evil desire and enticed. So here are some principles that I think will help us keep us from the error of blaming God for our sin and for our sin's consequences. And I want to give you uh, some of those. I'll give you the principles, uh, but let me give you this illustration. I've given it to some of you before, uh, if you've been here for a while, that Jonathan Edwards, many of you know who Jonathan Edwards was, He's considered by most, and certainly by me, to be the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. So that's big stuff. He was the first president of Princeton University, and he was just a brilliant mind. And Jonathan Edwards said that God has an ability to see events in a way that only he can see and creatures are not able to see. That God has two lenses to look at every event, and we only have one. God has two lenses. God has the narrow lens in which he sees the event by itself. And all of us have the narrow lens. We can see the event by itself. And the event by itself may be something that's good or bad or indifferent. If someone is in a car accident and they're injured, that's a bad thing. 
That's a result of living in a fallen world, and we can pronounce that. That's a, that's a bad circumstance. That's a difficult circumstance. And in that narrow lens, we see that. But Edwards said, unlike us who can only see the event in that narrow way, it's either good, bad, or indifferent, God sees through the broad lens, not just the narrow lens, but also the broad lens. And in the broad lens, God can see things that, from our limited vantage point, we can't. God sees how that thing, good, bad, or indifferent, fits together with all other things. And how it's going to, that is going to have a cause and effect on the next event and the next event and ultimately come out for our good and his glory. It's because God has that ability to design events in such a way that he can see them in their broadest sense and, and, and the outcome be ultimately for our good and his glory that promises like Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 are true. Romans eight twenty eight. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, that's the NIV quote I just gave you. That's the New International Version. We know that in all things God works for good. Now, in the King James Version, that says, we know that all things work together for good. Now, here's why. I'm not picking on the King James. And if you're somebody who, every, every time I mention a King James, at the end of the service, I always have somebody who comes and smacks me with their King James and says, I'm still holding on to my King James. All right, all right, good. It's all good. But the NIV translation is superior there for this important reason. Notice what the subject is, the way that's laid out in the King James. We know that, in, that all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Listen, things don't work. In the NIV, it says, we know that God works all things. You see, God is the subject and God works stuff. God works things. Things don't just work. All right, you've got that piece of candy? I'm kidding. (laughs) Somebody's trying to open a piece of candy on the sly. All right, we're all good. We're good. God even works that together for good somehow. And he works it all ultimately for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God, in the, in the words of one author, Brian Chappell, says that God is moving heaven and earth. God is moving heaven and earth for the ultimate good of his people. What a marvelous thing that God A sovereign God is moving all things ultimately for the good of his people. But it's God who's doing that actively. All right, so God has can look through the narrow lens, but God can look through the broadest lens, and God can see how that thing will fit into the next thing and the next thing and ultimately work out for his purpose of his glory and our good. Now, here's some principles to help keep us from the error of blaming God for our sin and our sin's consequences. First one is this, invoke the comfort of God's plan, the comfort of God's sovereignty for so-called acts of God. You know, insurance companies use that, right? That was an act of God. And what they mean is that, you know, it was something outside our control. 
So invoke the comfort of God's sovereignty, God's plan for acts of God in other circumstances beyond your control. So these are genuine instances of victimization, of living in a fallen world. Now, again, the reason I live in a fallen world is because I'm fallen and I contribute to it. But we can use the language of victimization for that. A tornado hits your house. You've been victimized by living in a, in a, in a fallen world, an act of God. So these would include common kinds of tragedies such as famine, an earthquake, terrorism. It would also include personal tragedies like the diagnosis of terminal cancer, an involuntary layoff, crime committed against you, those kinds of things. You've been victimized. And in those, we should, and the Bible does, invoke the comfort of God's sovereignty in this. That somehow in the midst of this, even this difficult thing that has happened to me, it's not something I did in this instance, it's been done to me, invoke the comfort of God's sovereignty. That he has a plan in, in all of this. But then secondly, invoke the mercy of God's redemption for sin. So in the first case, when I'm invoking God's, the comfort of God's plan, God's sovereignty for things that happen to me that are outside of my control, but now these are things that are in my control. I violated God's moral will. But I should still invoke the mercy of God's redemption. And so this includes mercy to endure the consequences of sin, as well as to overcome the sin itself. So, for instance, drunkenness that results in a loss of life. Someone goes out and drives drunk, and someone is killed. Or the loss of a job, or laziness that's resulted in financial instability. These are all moral sins for which we are morally culpable. But what should we invoke with that? If we're convicted by that, then we confess that, and we invoke the mercy of God's redemption for violations of his moral will. And then I have a couple of other um, principles for us to follow as we take responsibility for the things we've done and yet at the same time recognize that there are times when things are done to us as well and how that fits with God's sovereign plan and our, uh, our responsibility. I've got some more of those. However, it is the appointed hour, I think. It is 1145. And so are you guys good to go? So Wayne is going to come. He's the head of our security team. And he's going to introduce some instructions and the guys and take it from there. All right. Thank you, Pastor Ken. As uh, most of you know, we're going to have a fire drill today. Uh, and, and I want to explain before we do that just a couple of things about our security team. First of all, I want to let you know that the uh, your safety is of utmost important to us. It's it's important. Uh, it's a concern, along with the children, uh, your children that are in uh, throughout the building in different uh, rooms. Uh, that's important to us, their safety. And therefore, we've put a lot of policies and procedures in place uh, to keep that, keep you safe in an emergency situation. And as an example, we're going to do a fire drill today. Now, why are we doing a fire drill? Uh, we did one uh, several years ago in Woodhaven High School. It worked out very well. There's two reasons. We want to make sure that what's put on paper actually works very fluently, all right, because what's on paper might not work in real life. So we want to make sure all the bugs are worked out of it in a practice setting. Okay. Secondly, we want to do this fire drill because I want to show to the parents here, all, there's a lot of new people in the church since uh, four or five years ago. A lot of new kids. Our, our ministry has almost doubled with the children. And I want to show the parents that we, we do have everything under control. You don't have to worry about your children while you're in here listening to Pastor Ken speak and, and preach, all right, that your children are taken care of. We take it seriously. And because of that, we want to show you how we can run a, a safety drill, a fire drill, and uh, where everybody 
everybody can meet together safely. Uh, there are two other emergency situations that our security team handles before they come forward. One would be for inclement weather. Uh, and so uh, let's say uh, it's bad weather and there's a tornado that's touching down in Trenton and we get the word uh, that we need to uh, seek shelter. Well, this room's not very good because it's outside walls and we've got a lot of glass there that could potentially be hazardous. Uh, if you've ever walked through the common area all the way around and you look up, you notice that there's glass all the way around the top that lets in nice light. But that potentially also can be a danger. So we have our policy set up that in an emergency situation for weather conditions, we all meet in the very center of the church, which is our junior high section. All right, There are no windows to the outside. That's the most safe place for us to be. Uh, you would all be ushered into that build, into that center of the building along with your children. All right. Just like today, uh, we want to make sure that our security guys uh, are escorting you out to the front of the building where you will then be reunited with your children. We don't have, want to have to worry about parents running through the building with, the, with a smoke filling the building or a fire, a potential fire, and you have to look for your children. All right, that's a dangerous situation. So we want you to know we have our security team in place to do that, and you will meet them out in front of the building. Uh, then our last last emergency situation that would, could arise that our security team has been uh, uh, trained for would be a lockdown procedure. All right, and that's an extreme emergency situation. But we want to train for the extreme emergency if it ever were to happen. Uh, I doubt that seriously we'd ever have to implement this, but. Uh, all you have to do is look online, folks, at church shootings, and you can read the rest of the day on churches across America that came across this problem. There are people out there that come into a church for the sole purpose and intent of harming people or disrupting the service. And so we have policies in place to help correct that problem so it doesn't happen ever here. Uh, in fact, the lockdown procedures are so common now that our, our schools are teaching it. As a matter of fact, my first grader, uh, Angelina, Second, second week of school, already had a lockdown procedure done in, in school. They explained everything to the kids, why there's a procedure, where to go in the classroom, how to behave. She then told the teacher afterwards, she said, uh, Miss A is her teacher, she said, Miss A, if there's really ever a lockdown, you don't have to worry because my dad's a cop, okay, and he'll get the bad guy. Now, I appreciate the, the uh, enthusiasm of my daughter and the vote of confidence, but I can't do it myself. Uh, and same here. We have a great group of guys and a uh, security team guys. If you want to step forward uh, and come on up here, uh, I want to introduce our security team, all right, because I want to make sure you understand we're not some silent secret assassin group. We're not looking to uh, uh, drop the bomb on somebody if they misbehave. Uh, I do have to keep Larry Charbonneau in, in close in check. He keeps asking if he can carry mace and a taser. I don't know why he does that. All right, Larry's the brute of our group, but no, in all seriousness, these guys uh, are a great group of guys. Uh, they do a lot, and they're not, we're not just uh, a bouncer group. That's not what we're all about. I like to think of us as an extension of our welcome team. Uh, and if you have any questions, uh, and if you're a visitor, or if you're somebody new to our, our church, and you have a question, these are the guys that you can ask. If you don't know where your child goes, what classroom they're to attend, they can help you. All right. If you have a problem, they can help you. Uh, we also, you, you usually can hear me right uh, during cafe community at the end, because uh, after 21 years of police work, I don't have a problem telling people what to do. All right. So you can usually hear me telling people, please come into the service. Sunday school is about to start. But that's what these guys do. They keep the uh, the hallways clear of your teens and your little kids. 
you can trust that they're not just running around uh, goofing off. They're in their classroom. They're, they're learning the Bible, and they're safe. All right, and that's what these guys do uh, during church. While church is happening, we usually have two guys on security at all times, watching the parking lots, watching the hallways, and just answering any questions that you might have. They also have individual specific tasks in an emergency. So when we do this fire drill, they're all going to scatter because they're all going to different classrooms to make sure that those classrooms are properly and very uh, closely monitored and all the children are left uh, are gotten out of the building safely. All right, so they all have individual tasks. All right, appreciate it, guys. You guys can get uh, ready uh, for the drill. We do have one other group uh, that I'd like to mention. We have a medical team. Uh, here at the church. And could I have all our medical team personnel, all our medical staff, step forward and come up? I know some of them are in Sunday school classes. Beth, you can come up too. You're trained. Come on up here. Uh, this more likely is the group that you're going to need. All right? They've been actually pretty busy the, over the summer. And we've used our medical team probably four or five different times. Some of you probably didn't even know that they were being used. And that's a great thing. Uh, that they can act, they can come to your render aid for any type of safety issue that you have. And some of you are so focused on Pastor Ken preaching, you didn't even know that it happened, all right, which is good. Uh, but we've had all kinds of medical emergencies that they can handle. We have a medical kit. We have a defibrillator. These people are all trained in different types of medicine. We have a couple RNs. We have a doctor on staff. We have uh, these two guys are EMTs. So they're used to seeing all kinds of different types of things that we can handle and take care of you while we wait for the fire department and the EMS to actually arrive. So please, if you're having any type of trouble, don't keep it to yourself. One of the most common things people do in church is they feel that pain or they start sweating or they feel faint, but they don't want to interrupt anyone. And then it gets too late. Don't don't feel that way. Please interrupt us. Please come and, and look at the, any of these people can help you. Uh, any of our, meta, our, our security team will definitely want to help you. They can get these people uh, in a few seconds. We can get you out in the hallway and take care of you. Okay? So thank you very much. All right, as far as our fire drill, because this is what we're going to do. We're done for the day. Um, our fire drill will conclude Sunday school. So if you are out in the parking lot, you don't have to come back into the building. Once we're done and we dismiss out there, you can get in your car and leave. But by all means, feel free to come back in the building if you'd like to. All right? And the way this works is uh, we're not going to sound the alarm like a general alarm where the whole building's uh, very loud. Uh, I'm just going to give an announcement through the radio system, and all the, all the security guys will start the evacuation. Uh, your job as adults is to not panic. And, of course, you won't during a fire drill. Uh, but in all seriousness, our kids, I've found out, handle fire drills and emergencies much better than adults. Why? Because they do them in school all the time, and it's routine, and they know exactly what to do. But adults sometimes think they know better, and they want to help in areas that they really don't need to help in. All right? All we need you to do is walk carefully out the, the exit in the rear, now, right now, in a real emergency, we have two exits in this building. We have the front one up here, and we have this rear exit. Uh, the idea is to walk out carefully and over to the sign that we have over in the parking lot, which says Community Bible Church sign in the lawn, and that's where everyone will be reunited, the adults in this room, 
all the classrooms, the junior hires and the senior hires, they all have different exits to leave out of, but they all end up in the same place, out in the front lawn, so that in a real emergency, we can, we can get a count of your family to make sure that you are reunited with your children, everybody's safe. If there is someone missing, we have people that are walking around the bathrooms, all the hallways, the east wing that's not being used. All these areas are being double-checked to make sure no one's left in the building, okay? So that's our fire drill. Again, we're going to do that in just one minute as soon as I get make sure that they're set. And um, everybody can just w walk out the exit and follow Larry Charbonneau is actually the gentleman that you will be following. Again, if you don't follow close enough, he's going to pull his taser out and tase you. So you need to listen to Larry because he, he looks very nice and meek and mild. But, boy, you put him in action, don't, don't cross him, all right? All right, we're going to get started in just a second. Thank you.